So, good morning, Horizon. I am so honored to be here, honored by the invitation, really enjoying getting to know your staff um, and the amazing Carrie Clausen who has made it happen. Yeah, that woman has organization in her blood. Yeah. And um, today I have the privilege of telling you a little bit of my story. Uh, your uh, pastor had decided that maybe this would be uh, helpful for the uh, exploring service and for those of you who are still pondering the claims of the gospel, maybe hearing someone else's story would um, help you as you ponder. And I am so honored to be a part of that. So as uh, introduced, I am an academic. And as an academic, I am the Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at a private college on the West Coast, Westmont College. Um, PhD is from Harvard University. I have an incredibly handsome husband and two perfect daughters. And, and I regularly have people look at my life and, and say, oh my gosh, you've, you know, you've never had a, a, a difficult moment ever now have you living under a star all these sorts of comments that make me say man we really need to get to know each other better so um that's who i am now uh but i would love the opportunity to tell you how jesus got me from there which is where I was before, to here. And as we do that, I'd like to work around a biblical passage. And it comes from uh, one of Paul's letters uh, to the church of Corinth. And he's speaking to the new converts in a Greek city, the city of Corinth. And uh, Paul had visited the city back in 51 CE, and he'd launched a church there. But these folks are still brand new like still figuring out all of the do's and don'ts of living a Christian life. And they happen to be living in Corinth, which doesn't mean much to you, but let me help you here. It's kind of the Las Vegas of the ancient world. It lies on this little tiny strip of land that connects the Peloponnese to the mainland. And those are kind of those two bodies of, of land when you look at Greece. So it's kind of like the Panama Canal. So think port town, think free port town. Think lots of wealth, lots of sailors, a naval fleet, all sorts of fertile agricultural land, abundant water, and perhaps most important, a very big, a very fancy temple to Aphrodite. Aphrodite, all you Percy Jackson fans out there, she is the goddess of Hmm, I'll try that again. She is, the, she is the goddess of love. Thank you very much. And uh, we're not talking like the um, filial love of devotion. We're talking flat out, bold, erotic love. So as you think about a huge fancy temple, lots of sailors, lots of cash flow, and a temple dedicated to Aphrodite, are you getting a feel for what the town of Corinth might have been like. Las Vegas is a good comparison, or if you happen to have ever visited Burning Man out in the Black Rock Desert, you'd get a good feel of the city of Corinth. And Paul is busy trying to teach these people that in the upside-down world of the kingdom of God, 
that what looked so important in their old lives, money, sex, and power, it's always money, sex, and power, are not going to be so important in their new lives. And the folks who held all the cards in the old life are not necessarily going to be the folks who hold all the cards in the new. So let me read it for you. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 27. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things that are mighty. And the base things of the world and the things which are despised, God has chosen. And the things which are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no flesh can glory in his presence. Now, I know that for a lot of you, this is still biblish, you know. It's in the Bible, it's in English, but it's gibberish. But basically, what it is saying is that God fixes broken stuff. <laughs> That's basically the deal. And the reason I chose this passage is because my story is all about God choosing the foolish things of this world. Um, so who I am now, a bona fide biblical scholar, endowed chair. That's a big deal if you're an academic. For the rest of you, you're like, what, they give you a chair? But what, <laughs> you know, there's Ikea. Go, go buy a chair. Okay. I do indeed travel hither and yon, preaching and teaching, program design. I'm on the NIV translation committee. By the way, we got to talk about your translation thing. Okay. Um, I have a pretty respectable publication record in the guild and the church and yeah. But what I would like to communicate to you this morning is two things. One, I want to tell you about the God who called my life back from a very dark place and made something where there was nothing. And two, I want to tell you that this God who did it for me, <laughs> he will surely do it for you as well. He is the God who has chosen the weak things of the world, the broken, the pieces that no one else could put back together to shame the strong. So, my story. Um, I come from one of those upbringings that most people would prefer not to claim. Uh, like many stories, it didn't start off that way, but it surely ended that way. My father was an officer in the U.S. Navy, trained as an electrical engineer, very smart, very handsome, a fighter pilot, actually. Um, I am not exaggerating when I say think Tom Cruise. Um, my mother was a small-town girl from West Warwick, Rhode Island, the first member of her extended family to go to college. She's very proud of the fact that she earned a degree as a registered nurse. She was respected in her field and um, basically got up and out of the hood with her education. My parents uh, were both young and beautiful and smart, and if you were to flip through their wedding al album, you would likely conclude that these are the beautiful people. Hey, that's where they are. They're in that wedding album. Um, in fact, to this day, I like to watch the Dick Van Dyke reruns. Anyone else with me? Um, Dick Van Dyke, Rob, and Laura, who were the epitome of what life was supposed to look like in the 1960s. And I like to watch it because it reminds me of what my household looked like um, before. Okay, so um, my dad, quarterback. 
of his high school football team, my mom, cheerleader. He looked awesome in his dress whites and she managed to hold down a full-time job, have five babies and still look great on the beach. How do these people do this? They had unlocked that elusive door into the popular club, which was uh, highly evident in the number of parties that they attended. And according to the wisdom of this world, think Paul's letter, they had everything going for them. But no one really knows what's going on behind that Martha Stewart front door, now do we? And because my parents uh, didn't quite have everything, um, or maybe they had one too many things. Because you see, in addition to being beautiful and talented, my mother was also the third generation offspring of an alcoholic family. And as a small town French Canadian girl from West Warwick, the town still has a side street named after her family. Um, the life of a Navy wife in the 60s was hard. And for those of you who might be military, you know the military has changed a lot. But in those days, you put your man on an aircraft carrier and you didn't see him for nine months. In those days, our family was relocated sometimes three times in a year. I went to three different first grades. My dad didn't meet me till I was three weeks old. So this sort of constant transition, the relocation, the long separations, the perfectionism of military life, a party culture soaked in alcohol. For my mom, these realities quickly triggered in her the legacy of death that she had inherited. And by the time I was five, my mom was losing the battle against her heritage. By the time I was 12, she was, by all measures, bouncing off of rock bottom. Life-threatening car accidents, arrests. Uh, one of those accidents landed her in her hospital, where in the ICU, with life-preserving treatment, she started going through DTs, which, of course, cost her not only her job, but blackmailed her in her profession. There were several seasons of attempted rehab, and can I tell you that her five kids were in serious crisis? Now, if you know anything about alcoholics, and just statistically, uh, at least 20% of you do, if you know anything about alcoholics, you know that they are not to be controlled. And if you know anything about military men, you know that they need to be in control. So in addition to the neglect and humiliation of an alcoholic mom, I had a very angry and depressed uh, dad who was becoming more violent and more abusive as every chunk of his dream evaporated into my mother's issues. So the isolation of military life, the neglect of alcoholism, and the violence of abusive parents, that was my childhood. And not only my childhood, but that of my four sisters as well. And again, statistically, there are some of you here who know exactly what I'm talking about. Um, now, I don't want you to get the wrong impression about my family. We looked really good. Uh, we were upper middle class. We lived in Potomac, Maryland. I went to one of the finest high schools in the country at the time. My two older sisters were honors students. Uh, there were several varsity athletes among us. Field hockey is my sport. Um, we 
did the right stuff. We were faithful Catholics. I was baptized at six weeks old, right on schedule. First communion at six years old, confirmed at 12, Catholic schools, CCD, the works. I'd been raised right. I knew good table manners, and I knew how to work. Um, but reality is, um, I saw things that children are not supposed to see. And I heard things that children are not supposed to hear. And I came to believe things about life and about myself that God does not believe. And by the time I was in my early teens, I was well on my way to becoming a statistic. My oldest sister found shelter in the gay subculture of her high school. My second sister was in constant physical conflict with my parents, and she found her safe space with the bad boys and all the baggage that came with that. My younger sisters, God help them, no parenting, no guidance, no, uh, yes, no protection from a very broken world. By my birth order, I'm the lost child. And again, all of you celebrate recovery, XAA types, you know about me. Um, and the lost child is the one who constantly tries to make peace and disappears from the violence. And oh, <laughs> was I lost, yeah. Um, so by the time I was 13, I was a full-blown bulimic before they even knew what bulimia was. I was desperately alone, self-hating, and regularly thinking about suicide. But in the midst of this very desperate scenario, I wandered across the street of my suburban home in Potomac, Maryland, and I stumbled into an Episcopalian youth group, go figure, that was sweeping, um, actually, that was experiencing the sweeping move of the Holy Spirit. And I literally wandered across the street and the back door was opened into the basement of the church and I stumbled into a relationship with for real Christians. Now, you would think that I had already met some Christians, right? I'd been in church pretty much every Sunday of my life. Um, but reality was that there was no one in my circle, in my experience, who actually believed any of this stuff. So yeah, we were God-fearers, yeah, we went to church, but that was it. We'd celebrate the holidays, pray at the meals, but there was no substance to it. So these Christians that I met across the street, um, they, they were kids. Yeah, teenagers, a few young adults. They were not theologically sophisticated. They were not particularly wise or wealthy. Think about Paul again. Um, okay, some of them were actually kind of wealthy. This was the Washington suburbs. But these teenagers and young adults, they'd experienced the love of God. It had changed their lives. And they were bold enough to share it with me. So they came alongside this teenager who was so determined to never be hurt again that I was very careful to reject everyone else before they had the chance to reject me. 
I was mouthy, I was arrogant, obnoxious, unresponsive, I could swear like a sailor. I didn't even have particularly good personal hygiene because I didn't have a mom. I was no prize, <laughs> let me assure you of this. I had absolutely nothing to offer these people. Heck, I didn't even recognize my own need. But looking back on it now, I know that I was desperate for someone to see past my grisly exterior and see my wounded heart. And these teenagers, just a few years older than me, managed to do that. And they did it in the simplest fashion possible. They became my friend. And they started inviting me to their stuff. They hung out with me. They loved me. And in their eyes and in their actions, I began to catch a glimpse, to see the possibility of something different. And in their kindness to me, I caught a glimpse of the kindness of God. In their welcome, I began to believe that God might actually welcome me. And in their fellowship, I began to understand what being a Christian might mean. So I was drawn to them and thereby to their God. So every Friday night, I would find myself again wandering across that street and walking through that wide open back door of St. James Episcopal Church and encountering something I'd never experienced before. And the knot in my stomach would loosen as their songs and their kindness and what I now know was the gentle presence of the Holy Spirit began to wash over me. Now, as is obvious from my self-description, um, I wasn't necessarily the kid you'd want to hang out with if you were a kid. And I might not be the kid that you'd want your kid hanging out with. But um, there would have been in that mix no one who would have described me as influential or important, definitely not cool, you would have had to have very good vision indeed to see any sort of particular potential in my life. I was an underachieving student with poor social skills and again, worse personal hygiene, but I was a darn good halfback, let me tell you that. Okay, I was someone that no one would have predicted would make a difference. And I was also someone who it wasn't easy to be with. But because of the perseverance of their friendship toward me, well, my stubborn, wounded heart started open just a little bit. So how did I finally come to the point of faith and commitment? Especially important in a service like this, as you're thinking about it, how did I get there? Well, remember how I told you that these kids used to invite me to their stuff? Well, one of the stuff things that they invited me to was something called Jesus 76, a Jesus festival. It was one of the very first. You want to think Woodstock without the drugs and without the police and without the fires and without the protest. Think Woodstock, but think about an arena that's full of Jesus music, music and a whole bunch of people who would never dream of getting in trouble. Okay, so like Woodstock, it was some farmer who volunteered his fields in Mercer, Pennsylvania, not all that far from here, donated the use of his land between harvests, so we all set up camp in the middle of this 
big harvested cornfield in mid-August. I can still remember cutting my flip-flopped feet on the freshly cut um, corn stalks. And I also still remember the very significant sunburn because no one in our group was responsible enough to remember to bring sunblock or a hat. So there we are. There were 45,000 kids at this gathering, right? And I'm a Catholic kid raised in a Jewish neighborhood. I'm like, where are all these people coming from? Hmm. And uh, I mentioned that it was kind of casual. Um, there were maybe six porta-potties in the whole place. All right. But Honeytree, Terry Talbot, Pat Robertson, Daniel Amos, second chapter of Acts, you remember these groups? They were there. And so they set up this big stage, an enormous sound system, some meeting tents in the midst, and we all had at it. Now, a very important aside to my story is that one of the foci, that is academic speak for focuses, which isn't a word, by the way, um, one of the focuses of this gathering is they were going to have a baptismal at the end of the weekend. And they had set aside a very nice cow pond for the event, because this is a farm, right? So that's an important side thing. All right, so I go to this meeting, and oh my gosh, did I love these friends. And I love the way they treated me. And I thought that they thought that I was already a Christian. Because by now, I'd been hanging out with them for, I don't know, 18 months, maybe two years. And in my mind, if you wanted to be an insider, then you needed to be a believer. But I knew I actually wasn't. But I thought that I was fooling them really well. Um, in other words, I was kind of keeping my unconverted status on the down low. Um, why had I not given my heart away? Because in the words of Billy Joel, it was all a matter of trust. I simply could not lower that wall of self-defense and trust anyone. And I was only 15 and I was already there. So how ironic it is that I thought that my friends thought that I was already a Christian. But of course they were dragging me to this Jesus festival because they were praying and fasting all night for me. So I show up at Mercer, Pennsylvania. Um, we're having a great time. And um, I'm thinking that everybody thinks I'm an insider. So what about the festival? Well, we had a blast. We slept in tents. There was music. There was speakers. There was worship time. We're roasting hot dogs on way illegal fires. Um, we're bathing in the local river. There is zero adult supervision. These people had promised my less than attentive parents that there were going to be adults. I didn't see an adult for three days. But believe it or not, we didn't actually need one. And as I watched... And this would be the push over the edge moment for me. As I watched these friends of mine who were so kind to me, lost in passionate worship, just so fully engaged when the speakers would come, wanting to understand the word of God, wanting to live out a Christian life with integrity and sincerity, man, I realized really quick that they had something that I didn't have. And I wanted it. And I wanted it bad. But of course, I was too proud and too walled off and too scared to ask. So I was super conflicted during this entire weekend. So on Saturday afternoon, it's all going to end Sunday at noon. On Saturday afternoon, I went off uh, from the worship area, the central arena, to pray. Now, I didn't have a lot of experience praying. I had memorized the rosary beads, got that. 
But the idea of actually like speaking to God and the idea that he might talk back, yeah, don't have that down. Don't get that at all. But I figured I'd give it a shot. So I went and found a bush or two on the edge of the cornfield and I uh, assumed the posture that I thought God would want for me and like all good Catholic girls offered to die for him. Why is that the prayer that we would always pray? I will die for you if you will give me what they have. This was my prayer. I told God that I wanted what my new friends had and I was willing to do about just about anything to get it. But here's the crazy part. In that bush on the side of the cornfield, <laughs> God answered me. No, no, he answered me. Like, I was fully aware that the creator of the universe was responding to my stupid, unrehearsed prayer. And what he communicated to me, not quite in words, but clearly the divine communicating with me, was that if I wanted what they had, I was going to have to make the public commitment of heading to that cow pond and getting baptized. Now, I know nothing theologically. I don't understand that Christians are supposed to get baptized. I don't know what coming forward to make a confession of. I don't know any of this stuff. But I was absolutely certain that God wanted me to go forward for that next morning's baptismal ceremony, the one in the cow pond. If you've been in a cow pond, they have really slimy bottoms, by the way. <laughs> All right, so I knew that there would be thousands of people there. Most importantly, I knew my friends would be there and they'd be watching me and they would know that I wasn't an insider. Now again, I didn't know much of anything about baptisms. I'd seen the little babies and the, you know, tons of satin and the bird bath thing, but I, I, I really didn't understand that baptism was a confession of faith, but I knew that God was speaking to me. Yeah, so this event that God was speaking to me about, what I knew about it was it was going to be very public and everyone would see it if I said yes. So this crusty, desperate, bulimic adolescent said in response to the voice of the Almighty, ready? No way. There it is. No way. No way am I going forward in front of all of these people. No way am I announcing to my new friends that I'm not an insider. No way am I going to make a public spectacle of myself. No way. And so I got up from my little prayer bush, walked away, and tried to pretend that nothing ever happened. And now I'm thinking, you can't go the distance with too much resistance. That Billy Joel, I know you have doubts, but for God's sake, don't shut me out. All right, well, I was, I was ill at ease. And so I knew that I was in trouble, really nervous. My evolving plan was to forget that any of this had ever happened, return home the next day in the car caravan with all of my defenses, sin, and brokenness safely in place, and pretend that I'd never heard his voice. My plan was not to make an idiot out of myself by going forward to that baptism. But I couldn't quite make peace with this plan. I really didn't sleep that night. It just kept churning inside of me. So the next morning I got up, as was the normal plan, cleaned up after the tent, headed down to the arena, sat on our blanket, everybody's worshiping, having a lovely time. But I am 
I'm really uncomfortable. What if not getting baptized meant I would go to hell? Remember, no theological sophistication. Um, what if the baptism at birth didn't count? What if that wasn't enough? So the only thing I was really worried about was fire insurance. I was a good, solid God-fearer. What if my safe space as a God-fearer wasn't enough? What if this was my last chance churning? So as I'm sitting on this blanket and all of my friends start dissipating to other involvements, over here is Miss Sue Erickson. She's, we used to call her Wise Sue. She was 17. Okay. So she's sitting over there and I'm over churning, churning. And so I kind of turn to her and I very nonchalantly, I say, so, um, Sue, theoretically speaking, um, this baptism thing, is it? really important? Do you, do you have to do it? She's like, well, I don't know. Because, you know, I was baptized as an infant. Do, would someone theoretically need to get baptized again? And Sue Erickson, 17 years old, looked me in the eye and she said, Sandy, I don't know the answer to that question, but I do know that if God is talking to you about getting baptized, you better do it. I didn't say anything. I didn't tell her that. And so at that very moment, those words, it was like the floodgates of a lifetime of hurt and betrayal and abandonment just burst open. And I, who was so tough and so distant and so insulated, and who would do anything not to draw attention to myself, and who hadn't cried since I didn't know when, because you learn really early that crying just makes it worse, I erupted into racking sobs in the middle of a picnic blanket, in the middle of a cut cornfield in Jesus 76. I started crying, not pretty crying. We're talking snot and heaving and the kind of crying you can't politely ignore. And I couldn't speak. I couldn't explain myself. All I could do was cry. And my friend, the Christian, she stood up, she walked over to me, she stood me up, she put her arm around me, and she started walking me the half mile to this cow pond. I hadn't told her. <laughs> and so I am sobbing and snotting and crying the whole way over. And we get there, and there's this big crowd gathered around the pond because this is the Jesus movement and all the hippies that aren't at Woodstock or at Jesus 76. And the girl who never wanted anyone to notice her is having to push my way through the crowd going, excuse me, pardon me, I have to get baptized. I have to get baptized. And the whole way I'm going, I'm thinking, I don't care. I, I don't care who sees me. I will, I will strip naked to walk into that pond if I have to. I have to have whatever is waiting for me in that cow pond. And when I finally reached the water, when I finally got there, well, there were like six men in the water talking to people. Now, you all know that they were local pastors. Catholic kid raised in a Jewish neighborhood. Who are these guys? I have no idea. But as I reach the edge, one of them makes eye contact with me. He reaches out his hand. He pulls me into the water, and he starts asking me the critical questions. Do you believe in Jesus? Yes, 
yes. Have you repented of your sins? Yes, yes. Are you ready to start a new life with him? And with the tears flowing and the snot everywhere, yes, yes, yes. So he dunked me in that cow pond, and I came up, and I'm not dramatizing this, I came up a brand new creature. I, I, am, I am not quoting a pamphlet to you. The gates of heaven opened, and this scruffy, bulimic, suicidal, angry, bitter adolescent felt the love of God flood into my broken world and touch all of these frozen places inside of me that I hadn't let feel anything for a very long time. And I just kept crying and crying. It was like someone had pulled the plug on an infection and the tears were washing it away. So as I drove home from Jesus 76 in Mercer, Pennsylvania, with my face toward the window, because I didn't want any of my friends to see that I was still crying, still crying. And I kept whispering over and over again into the window, <laughs> dear God, please, please don't ever go away. Just stay, just stay. And now that I recognized his voice, I heard the reassurance, reassurance I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And speaking to you now, um, more than 40 years later, he never has. Never has. Lots of storms, lots of hard times, lots of really bad life decisions, because you don't emerge from a household like that with your act together. But he never has. So I would like to tell you that I went home to uh, parents who were thrilled to see this change in my life, who were grateful that someone had somehow reached me in my anger and hurt, but the truth is that I went home to the same alcoholic and abusive situation from which I'd come. In less than two months, uh, my mother would take her own life. And in less than a year, my father, who was very concerned about controlling me, would say that he couldn't stand this new attitude of mine and it was time for me to choose. Either change that new attitude or change your address. And I was naive enough in my new faith that I trusted God and chose a new address. And so I found myself essentially an orphan at the age of 16. But something profound had shifted in the way I saw the world that fateful day in August. And my citizenship had shifted to another kingdom. And I knew I wasn't alone. And God navigated what by all assessments are impossible circumstances for my good. First, God found me a new family. <laughs> At the very last second, when literally I was prepping to move into my 1967 Volkswagen, I was invited to go live with a family. I'd been ba their babysitter for years and years, and when they heard that I was in trouble, they asked if I would like to come live with them and finish out high school. Now, I never officially became a part of the foster system, so that's going to add some additional issues, but they moved me into their spare room. And this home that I was invited to live in was not a perfect home, but it was a normal home. 
like they'd have a fight at the dinner table and no one would get thrown against the wall. Parents who remembered to pick their kids up after events. Parents who took their kids to the doctor when they were sick. Adults who cooked meals and did laundry. And for the last two years of my childhood, I got to see a normal family function. And for those of you who come from a background like mine, you know that redefining normal is the hardest part. Yeah? Because it's normal to get thrown down the steps. It's normal to be left at CCD until 11 o'clock p.m. when everybody else has gone home. That's normal. So these folks redefined normal for me. And they became my surrogate parents. Because of their address, I was able to finish high school. And another set of miracles from a crazy guidance counselor who actually covered up my presence at my high school so that I could graduate. Um, God took care of me. And when God made it clear that I, the orphan, was to train for ministry, who knew you could do that? Pastors didn't even know. These folks would drive up every fall to my little Christian college on Parents' Day. My children called them Grandma and Grandpa. And it turns out that between my mother's Social Security benefits, a janitorial job at a local office building, and an RA position, I was able to get through college. And it further turned out that I was accepted for credentials and got to serve in pastoral ministry for nearly a decade. And when my denomination found me a little too interested in academics and a little too female and kind of asked me to find a nice exit, God opened up another impossible door. And the girl who went to Valley Forge Christian College was accepted to Harvard University. Okay, that's just stupid. And so after seven, count them, seven years of hard labor, learning everything from historical Hebrew grammar to Iron Age archaeology, but most importantly, learning to see my faith through the eyes of a skeptic, I launched my own career in training ministers. First at Asbury Theological, who's just an hour or two from here, then an inner city seminary in Jackson, Mississippi, worked in Teen Challenge for a bunch of years, then Wheaton College, and now here I am the Robert H. Gundry Chair of Biblical Studies at Westmont College. In my world, that means I've broken through the glass ceiling. So how? <laughs> how did this grimy kid, well on her way to becoming a statistic with no perceivable future, find out about Jesus and eventually become a fairly stable adult? <laughs> well, the answer is that God chooses the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And how did it happen? Because there were some average, everyday, extraordinary people, not wise by human standards, not influential or noble, who dared to love me. And they saw in me, this lowly one and despised, someone worthy of God's attention. Jesus says it often in the New Testament. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It's so small, no one would ever pay any attention to it. But when it's planted and watered, it becomes an enormous plant that, by the way, turns over its seed in 60 days. And if you're a subsistence farmer in the Iron Age, that's really important. Or it's like yeast in a lump of flour. One cup of yeast 
will leaven 60 pounds of flour. Once you mix it in there, you can't even see it. But let it get warm and wet, <laughs> and the world turns upside down. Brothers and sisters, Paul says, think of what you were when God called you. For me, not much. And know that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame those who think they're wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to change, to shame the things which appear to be mighty, the things which are despised, the things which are not, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Not a day goes by in my life where I don't give thanks for the fact that he navigated me through waters that very, very few children survive. I know that I am a brand snatched from the fire, and I know exactly who snatched that brand. So I have two words of conclusion for you guys. The first one, a little, a little more challenging. God is not impressed with our credentials. He can create PhDs out of the stones in the parking lot. But nor is he daunted by our deficits. It is not about who you were. It's not even about who you are. It's about who God is, and therefore about who he intends to make you. It really doesn't matter if you were a teen star finalist or you were me. It doesn't matter. Because he has chosen the weak things of this world to confound the wise. And my messy life is testimony to the truth of that. And I am so deeply grateful. But then the other thing I want to leave you with, and this especially for those of you who are still turning the gospel over. Are you still standing on the edges, hoping that no one will notice that you're not actually in yet. Well, my, my casual word to you is, hey, dude, <laughs> come on in. The water is fine. Are you sitting here this morning thinking that you are such a mess that there is no way your life can make a difference? You are so wrong. He is building his kingdom. And if you are willing he will build his kingdom with you. And if you are still willing, not only will he build it in you, he will build it with you. Can I pray for us? Father God, it is a privilege to get to tell the story of your grace in my life. It is a privilege to get to speak to these fine folk. God, I pray that your Holy Spirit will speak deeply into hearts. And if there is one soul here that feels that broken numbness in the core of their being, ah, that frozen place I knew so well. Lord, Holy Spirit, will you reach in and you, will you touch them today? And Lord, if there is anything that we can do to help them from that place to your place. Give us the strength and the courage to do it. In your name, amen.